from Diamond Light Source. This is the Diamond Podcast. Welcome to the Diamond Light Source Podcast. This second edition of the podcast will be a special insight into the life sciences. We'll be hearing what Diamond got up to at this year's American Association for the Advancement of Science Conference, or AAAS, as well as finding out how Diamond is revolutionising biological research. This really is an exciting opportunity for cell biologists, as it will allow them to illuminate a single cell with the micron-sized infrared beam that the beamline will produce. Martin Walsh, who'll be telling us about the new beamlines coming soon to Diamond that will help scientists understand more about human cells. We'll also be investigating how to design drugs to target and combat specific diseases. And if you want to design or develop a drug which will stick very precisely and very specifically to your target, then it's very helpful to have a a detailed picture of what it looks like. Stephen Curry will be explaining how he's been using x-rays to visualise the virus behind foot and mouth disease. And moving from farm animals to humans, Joanna Collingwood will be discussing how monitoring iron levels in certain cells in our brain could help us understand more about Parkinson's disease. We know that typically 80% of these particular cells will be lost in Parkinson's disease. And we also know that the concentration of iron in these cells is significantly higher in Parkinson's patients than in comparable healthy brains. But how can monitoring iron levels help treat this condition? I'm Mira Senthilingam and this is the Diamond Light Source Podcast. The Diamond Podcast. For more information, look us up online at diamond.ac.uk slash podcast. Before we take a look at how Diamond is helping the life sciences, let's join Sarah Bucknell from Diamond's communications team to find out what Diamond's been up to over the past couple of months. Well, it's been a really busy time at Diamond. Um, in February, we were at the AAAS in Chicago. That's the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Um, they had their annual meeting. Lots of people go along to hear about and discuss the latest scientific research. And so what did Diamond get up to there? Diamond took part in two scientific sessions. They did one all about the latest health research at Diamond, which was called Bright Light for Better Health. And um, they also took part in a collaborative session with other light sources, which was called Casting New Light on Ancient Secrets. And what was involved with Bright Light for Better Health? We had our Life Sciences Director, Professor Dave Stewart, and two of our users, Professor Keith Meek from the University of Cardiff and Dr Joanna Collingwood from Keele University. Uh, They all each gave a talk about their latest research, which they'd carried out at Diamond. Professor Stewart was talking about the latest developments in the study of viruses. Uh, Professor Meek was talking about his research into um, the cornea and how to improve laser eye surgery. Okay, and so going back to what they found out about viruses, what were the developments there? Well, Dave Stewart actually unveiled the structure of a biological protein from the vaccinia virus, which is a large complex virus that was used as the vaccine to eradicate smallpox. What did they actually discover about it? Um, They discovered that although it's a complicated member of the pox virus family, it's actually related to a large number of simpler viruses, um, which shows Darwinism at work and providing clues to how viruses have been evolving. So you mentioned that Professor Keith Meek from Cardiff was also there talking about his work on the cornea. 
That's right. He was looking at the structure of the collagen in the cornea, and this can relate to um, an eye disease called keratoconus, where the collagen is laid out differently to that in a normal eye. So this is really important research because their findings may be able to improve corneal surgery and also advance the technology of laser eye surgery. What was the second session that you did at the AAAS? So this one was called Casting New Light on Ancient Secrets. This was actually a group session with other light sources, um, some in America, some in Europe. And um, one of our scientists was speaking there, Dr Jen Hiller, and she was talking about a new beamline that we've got coming up this year and next year and how that can be used in cultural heritage science. What's the beamline? Uh, this is the Joint Engineering and Environmental Processing Beamline, uh, JEEP for short. Uh, it uses X-rays mainly for engineering research, but the beauty of it is that it will have a really large experimental hut, which means large, for example, engineering components can be brought in as opposed to really small samples. This is a benefit to the cultural heritage scientific field because they can actually bring in fully formed artefacts and scan them with our x-rays and then create the picture that they need to see. Okay, well it sounds like Diamond have been very busy at the AAAS, but as well as unveiling all this exciting science, you've also been a bit creative and you've got an art project going on at the moment. Yeah, that's our world's largest diffraction pattern. It's actually um, a textile project. We're asking lots of people to contribute um, just simply by adding a cross-stitch. It's basically creating a pattern like some of the ones we collect from our beam lines. This particular one uh, was collected by a company called Evotech who used diamond. The nice thing about this is that so many people are interested in diamond and have wanted to take part and add a stitch. And um, the next time it will be available to the public is at our Inside Diamond Day on the 23rd. Of May. So what's Inside Diamond Day? It's a day when we basically open up to the public and give them a, an opportunity to have a look around, to meet some of our staff and just to get to know a bit more about Diamond really. And then people can come along and add a few stitches to the pattern? Definitely. People have to register to visit but it is free and um, if they just go to our website they can find out more details about coming along to Inside Diamond. Thanks Sarah. Diamond Sarah Bucknell will be back with more of the latest news from Diamond in the next podcast. Now this month, we're finding out how Diamond is supporting the biological sciences. So now we hear from Life Science Coordinator Martin Walsh about how the various beamlines created by the synchrotron can help us find out more about living organisms. At Diamond, one of my roles as Life Science Coordinator is to engage with um, the UK uh, community to promote the unique capabilities of the diamond synchrotron. Uh, In particular, our aims are to encourage the development of new experiments using diamond, which can aid life science research in the UK and provide the infrastructure for the biologists to answer important biological questions that can further our understanding of life at the molecular level. And so how would a biologist use a synchrotron to answer their questions? The synchrotron itself produces electromagnetic radiation over a wide range of energies, and this spans from ultraviolet light to infrared and finally to x-rays. We can use these different forms of light to answer fundamental biological questions. A good example would be uh, in understanding the role of proteins. The proteins are essential molecules in all living organisms. So by using diamond, biologists are able to visualize the structure of these proteins, which aids us uh, in understanding their function and how they work in the cell. Other techniques provide essential tools for cancer research, for example. We're able to uh, allow biologists to image single cells 
and this can provide the basis for the development of new methods for identifying uh, normal cells as opposed to cancerous cells, and this can aid researchers in understanding cancer. But there are different types of beamlines at Diamond, so which of these do you use to look at proteins and cells? Uh, initially, in the first set of beamlines we have here at Diamond, there are three beamlines which have been dedicated towards using crystallography. This is a technique where we use X-rays to interact with biological samples, such as proteins. Um, amazingly, biologists are able to grow crystals of proteins, which actually can be considered as, as beautiful and as expensive as diamond crystals, except protein crystals are usually only tens of microns in size. Now, when these protein crystals are placed in the path of the X-rays at the diamond beam line, they interact with the X-rays and produce a characteristic pattern that we can use to understand the structure of the protein under investigation. Once we have the structure of the protein, scientists can use this information, for example, to design drugs that interact with the protein and interfere with its function, which could then lead to new therapeutics for preventing uh, a specific disease for which that protein is involved in. Now, you mentioned that you're using X-rays in order to study these biological functions, but why do people have to use X-rays at a synchrotron? Why can't they use just something like a hospital X-ray machine? Yes, Mira, that's a very good question. The synchrotron is a very specialised machine that produces X-rays that are billions of times more intense than an X-ray source. At a hospital, the X-rays are typically quite weak so that they don't actually uh, harm our bodies, and also they cover a very large area, whereas at Diamond, we have built a series of beam lines which direct and focus the very intense X-rays that we generate at the synchrotron into an extremely small uh, area, typically of the orders of microns in size. Now, by doing this, we're able to have a very intense micron-sized beam, which then enables the scientist to image the cell and its component parts. Is it just X-rays, or can you use other forms of synchrotron light as well? We also have an infrared and uh, UV light that uh, Diamond generates, and, and these forms of light can also aid biologists understand cellular processes. A new beamline that's coming online at Diamond at the moment is the circular dichroism beamline, and this uses ultraviolet light. One of the things that this beamline will allow us to do is measure the interactions between proteins and drugs. By measuring these interactions, we should be able to uh, aid in the development of new drugs for fighting human disease. And what about infrared? Yes, uh, we also have an infrared beamline that's uh, currently in construction at Diamond, and this really is an exciting opportunity for cell biologists, as it will allow them to illuminate a single cell with the micron-sized infrared beam that the beamline will produce. The interaction of the infrared light with the cell will produce a characteristic spectrum from the cell, and we can use this spectrum or pattern in a somewhat analogous way to fingerprinting. What I mean by that is that we could actually build up a library of patterns from healthy cells, and then we could use this library to find markers to identify abnormal or unhealthy cells, or, for example, cancerous cells. The final goal then would be to use this technique to apply it to a treatment therapies, for example, for chemotherapy. But chemotherapy is a treatment that's already used to fight cancer, so how can this make the therapy better? The idea here is by using this technique, we can follow the chemotherapy treatment by looking at the, uh, the markers and seeing if the, the cells are still cancerous or not. And the really exciting thing here is hopefully in the future, we should be able to refine a treatment regime on a person-by-person basis. So essentially, um, this infrared will allow clinicians to see if a particular patient's cancerous cells have stopped being cancerous as a result of the chemotherapy, and therefore the chemotherapy can stop. 
that's exactly the goal. Now, it sounds like there's a lot going on at Diamond already. Is there more to come in the future as well? Yes, indeed, Mira. Presently, we have seven beamlines in operation at Diamond. There is another uh, 10 beamlines coming online. And in the next five years, we intend to build another 10 beamlines, which will offer a huge range of uh, techniques to both the physical and life sciences and will aid in imaging the human body. That was Diamond's life sciences coordinator, Martin Walsh, explaining how X-rays, infrared and UV light can help scientists find out more about living organisms ranging from virus interactions to monitoring chemotherapy treatment on cancerous cells. Did you know that diamond is so powerful it produces more light than a 100 million suns? We've had an overview of the role synchrotron light can play in biological research. So now we delve a bit deeper to the minuscule world where proteins can be visualised, in particular, virus proteins. Foot and mouth disease is a highly contagious virus affecting cloven-hooved animals, which has had a dramatic effect on livestock throughout the world. Vaccinations are available to help control the disease, but this involves injecting the animals with inactivated virus particles to trigger an immune response, and then it becomes difficult to identify which animal has the disease. So in order to be able to trade animals worldwide, farmers can't use the vaccine continuously. In countries like the UK, these vaccines are mainly used during an epidemic to control its spread rather than cure the disease. But the vaccines also take a few weeks to kick in. So now Stephen Curry from Imperial College is trying to create a drug to be taken by infected livestock that will target the virus and stop it from replicating so the disease can be stopped more immediately whilst waiting for a vaccine to build up an immune response. He told me more about how the virus works. It's a mammalian RNA virus. It's a small sphere made of protein, uh, which contains a single molecule of RNA. And that molecule of RNA is basically a little piece of messenger RNA used to make proteins. So once it gets into the cell, the virus immediately starts to make proteins. It starts to reprogram the cell to make uh, new virus particles. And so what are the current um, methods of treatment for foot and mouth disease or prevention? Okay, there's no particular method of uh, uh, treatment, I'm afraid. Um, The main method of prevention is vaccination. Now, with your research, you're trying to design a drug to actually try and control foot and mouth in addition to someone using a vaccine. So you're focusing on a particular protein that is used by the virus. What are you focusing on? Well, we are focusing on the so-called 3C protease from the virus. And this is a very important component of the virus replication machinery, the machinery that it needs to make copies of itself inside an infected animal and inside an infected cell. So when the virus delivers its RNA to the inside of the cell, that little piece of messenger RNA starts to program the cell and it basically tricks the cell into starting to make virus proteins. Now the virus genes are actually rather simple because the virus only carries a single gene in its messenger RNA. And that single gene is translated as one great big long polyprotein. But before that polyprotein can be put to use, it has to be cut up into individual pieces, and those individual pieces then become the functional proteins that work together to make new virus particles. 
And the 3C protease is another protein that's uh, embedded within that polyprotein. And it actually does the job of cutting up the polyprotein into the individual bits. And so the idea is that if you can prevent the protease from cutting up the polyprotein, then you stop the replication process at a very early stage and you basically uh, prevent the virus from going any further and that will stop replication and the idea is then that that would, of course, prevent the spread of disease. So in order to help you design a drug to target this, you've been trying to visualise the actual structure of this protein. That's right. So we use a technique known as X-ray crystallography in order to work out a very detailed picture of what the uh, protease looks like. And the great advantage of this method is that it gives us a fully three-dimensional uh, depiction of the protease in uh, more or less atomic detail. And if you want to design or develop a drug, a very specific chemical, which will stick very precisely and very specifically to your target, in our case the 3C protease, then it's very helpful to have a, a detailed picture of what it looks like. So how does X-ray crystallography work to enable you to see the protein? And the first thing we need to do is make relatively large quantities of our protein that we're interested in studying by which I mean we need a few milligrams, and you then have to crystallize that protein. So by crystallizing it, you get the molecules to line up into very orderly rows, and uh, you stack the rows together to make sheets, and the sheets stack together to make a sort of three-dimensional array of molecules. And when you shine X-rays at your crystals, then you find that the crystal actually splits the X-ray into many hundreds of different rays, which you can then record the position of on a detector. And so the image that we see on our detector is basically a whole series of spots. Mathematically, we know that that pattern is very precisely related to the structure of the molecule that's inside the crystal. Basically, we have a three-dimensional picture of what the molecule looks like. What do you know about the areas that you can now target the drug to? We already now have an initial structure of the protease, and more recently we have uh, solved a structure of the protease as it's grabbing onto a piece of protein just before it's about to cut it. And so now we can see exactly not only the structure of the protease, but what it's doing just at the moment before it cuts a piece of protein that it's designed to target. And so we learn a lot about the chemistry of the interaction. And that information we can then use to think about uh, rational drug design because a drug is very often uh, a molecule that mimics the, uh, the natural substrate of the enzyme reaction. So essentially you want to create a drug that mimics the area that a protease attaches to before it starts cutting. And so essentially the drug would bind to the protease instead and then the protease wouldn't be able to start its cutting. Yes, that's exactly right. And one of the real challenges of good drug design is to try and find a, an inhibitor molecule that binds very tightly to the uh, to the target, in our case to the 3C protease. And because if the interaction is not very strong, it means that you actually have to then give very high concentrations of the drug in order to uh, have it work properly. Now, if you do actually manage to find an effective drug, what will the strategy be? If you do manage to develop a, a, an effective drug against foot and mouth, one would probably target it to countries which are normally disease-free, but when an epidemic erupts, then, of course, all hell breaks loose, and you want very quickly to try and damp down the uh, source of infection and prevent the spread of uh, disease. And we would envisage using a drug in that initial window when an outbreak happens in order to control the disease. So visualising a virus protein can help us target more specific drugs to stop the virus in its tracks.
That was Stephen Curry from Imperial College, London. Now, moving from the farm to the human brain and disorders affecting our brain. Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative condition affecting over 120,000 people in the UK and many millions worldwide. It's caused by a loss of cells in a particular part of the brain that produces dopamine, which is important for coordinating our movements. Scientists have long thought that the death of these cells could be linked to high levels of metal ions, particularly iron, in this region. So Joanna Collingwood is analysing samples of autopsy tissue from patients who had the disorder to find out if iron levels really are higher and how research can then be used to help catch the condition at an earlier stage. Well, we're looking at two forms of brain disease, namely Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. And in both of these diseases, regions that are affected, which are specific to each disease, show evidence of changes in certain metal ions. So we're using the x-rays of the diamond synchrotron to look at the distribution and form of metal ions in these critical regions. Which metal ions? The ones that we can access well at diamond include iron and copper and zinc, amongst others. And these are metals you'd normally expect to find in quite high concentrations in some of these regions of the brain. Um, but they're also implicated to a degree in the diseases. And so how are you going about um, using the synchrotron to look into this? Well, we're working with autopsy tissues. So these are tissues that when people die from the diseases concerned, we can obtain tissues from the brain banks and prepare them in a way that allows us to bring them to the synchrotrons to, to look directly at very thin slices of these tissues. So we can use a technique called microfocus X-ray fluorescence. And what we do is we're able to focus the beam of X-rays down to a very, very small spot, smaller than a lot of the brain cells that we're interested in. And by having a very thin slice of the sample sitting in this beam of X-rays and moving the sample around on a high-precision stage, we can make a map by obtaining the fluorescent signal from the metal ions of interest at each point in the map. And so what we end up with is a contrast map made up entirely from the metal ion signal. And so if you change concentration of, say, iron or copper from one spot to the next, we'll see that in the contrast map afterwards. And the other thing that we do at the beam line is that if we, if we have a particular region of interest and we want to know what form that metal ion is in, we sit at one particular point in the map where we know we have a concentration of that metal ion, and then we change the energy of the X-rays. And by doing that, it allows us to collect quite specific information about the form in which the metal ion is stored. Which regions of the brain are you focusing on to look at these ions? Well, in Parkinson's disease, there's a very critical region called the substantia nigra. And this relatively small region in the midbrain, this has a collection of essential brain cells which are responsible for creating dopamine. Dopamine's a neurotransmitter, and we need that for things like controlled movement. So one of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease is very significant impact on the ability of individuals to, to manage movement. And we know that typically 80% of these particular cells will be lost in Parkinson's disease. And we also know from our previous studies that the level, the concentration of iron in these individual vulnerable cells is 
significantly higher in Parkinson's patients, the autopsy tissue from Parkinson's patients, than in comparable healthy brains. So we're looking um, with particular interest at the iron in this region of the brain, not just in the cells that are selectively lost in the disease, but also in the surrounding tissue and the support cells to try and find out where the primary changes are in the iron in this region of the tissue. Well, what the synchrotron is allowing us to do that builds upon previous work is to look at the form of the iron, as in what it's bound to and its chemical state, in addition to its distribution. And so what have you actually found with your research so far? Well, our original study, we saw that the concentration of iron in the individual cells almost doubled. Now, what we've been able to go on and do at Diamond is to collect quite a lot of information about the chemical form of the iron in these cells, but we've also been able to get the distribution of iron in the surrounding cells and the surrounding tissue to build on that initial study. That's a work in progress. And so what are the aims of your current work? Are you hoping that this can be used clinically for treatment or diagnosis of the disease? If we can understand the changes in the tissues and understand the contribution that the metal ions are making to to changes in these tissues, this should support some of the current work that's going on to use magnetic resonance imaging to pick up early changes. It's assumed in quite a lot of clinical studies at the moment that changes that are being observed clinically in magnetic resonance imaging are due directly to the ion changes. So in effect, what we're doing is looking to validate that assumption from from first principles, looking to see whether those changes in the clinical MRI are directly due to iron, and therefore, if it could be used as a a long-term way of picking up chemical changes in the tissue before you start getting damage to the cells if the iron is contributing to that process. That was Joanna Collingwood from Keele University. That's it for this edition of the Diamond Podcast, but do join us again in June when we'll be back with more of the latest news and discoveries from Diamond, including a special insight into the tiny world of nanoscience. In the meantime, if you have any questions about Diamond or the research taking place there, the email address is podcast at diamond.ac.uk. Thank you to Sarah Bucknell, Martin Walsh, Stephen Curry and Joanna Collingwood. I'm Mira Senthi-Lingam. Thanks for listening and see you next time. The Diamond Podcast is brought to you by Diamond Light Source and produced by thenakedscientists.com. There's more information on our website at diamond.ac.uk slash podcast.